Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Hello Harvest, great to be with you again. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, this, this morning we're going to continue in the Bible Project's Church at Home series, and it's another topical uh, word, it's the word generosity. And I know that uh, I did a little bit on generosity last Sunday when we talked about loving God out of our muchness. And an element of that was to love God with the generosity of our hearts. Uh, this morning, I want to do a deeper dive on that and especially focus on how we love other people through our generosity. You know, one of my regrets as your pastor is that over the last 25 years, I didn't preach enough uh, on the topics of greed and materialism and generosity and giving. I've touched on it here and there, but nowhere near proportion to how often God talks about it. Howard Dayton, who is the co-founder of Crown Financial Ministries, uh, did a study before he launched his ministry, just trying to see what the Bible had to say about money and material possessions. And he was astounded to find at least 2,350 verses that dealt with the topic of money and possessions. The only subject dealt with more often in the Bible than money is love. And I think that's interesting because generosity is that intersection. It's that place where love and money meet. In other words, generosity is love for God and love for other people expressed through money. Today I want to look at a few verses in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 along with a few other verses. And I want to do a deep dive on what it really looks like to be generous as a Christ follower. Now, before we start with um, what that means, we have to take a look, though, at a word of warning. You know, the Bible offers some pretty stern warnings against greed. Think about it. If scientists told you that artificial sweeteners like stevia or NutraSweet were proven to be carcinogenic, wouldn't you take that warning seriously? It'd be hard to give up diet foods and diet drinks, but man, if I found out that those are proven to cause cancer, I'd take it very seriously. I'd work very hard to avoid that. Every time someone served me something, I would just ask or double-check because warnings are meant to make us alert, and warnings are meant to spare us from unnecessary suffering and struggle. And the Bible is filled with warnings, and many of them have to do with our relationship to money and material possessions. If you look at 1 Timothy 6, 9-10, it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, the Bible makes it clear that money is itself morally neutral, but it is far from harmless. A twisted relationship with money can lead to so much destruction and trouble in your life and the lives of those around you. And in fact, here Paul warns Timothy that it could even cost you your faith. 
And usually it's not like an abrupt thing where you see money and suddenly you turn away from God, but it says it has caused many to wander from the faith, suggesting that often the seduction of money, its power to take the place of God in our lives, can lead us or or seduce us slowly uh, through a process of gradual drifting away from God until we look up and realize that the things we once drew from God, we have chosen instead to draw from money. It's a, it, when you look at this word desire at the beginning of this, these two verses here, it says those who desire to be rich. That's a very interesting word because it doesn't just suggest longing or wanting. It is about a, an unshakable resolve or intent. It's not somebody saying, man, I hope I someday will have lots of money. It's somebody who says in his own heart, I will be rich. I need to be wealthy. And then sets, sets off to commit themselves to a life where that becomes possible. This kind of desire is a way of elevating money, which is supposed to be a means, into an end in itself. Jesus was much more direct in Luke twelve fifteen. He says this, Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There's so much I want to say from that verse, but I'll just mainly say Jesus gives this clear warning, watch out and be on your guard because he says, I think what he's suggesting here is it's, it's one of those sins that sneaks up on you. I don't know if you remember when I preached on the seven deadly sins, one of the things that I mentioned was all these other sins are really easy to spot in other people and even in ourselves. But greed is one of those things that kind of sneaks up on you. It's easy to believe that that's not a problem you have. And because it's so hard to detect in ourselves, because really, how do you know the difference between just really liking and appreciating something and needing or wanting or even worshiping it? It's not always easy to know when you've crossed that line. If you've ever known someone who's got a serious problem with alcohol, alcoholics vigorously deny that they have any problem at all until it's too late. Try to confront someone about their drinking problem and you are in for a very rough ride because the nature of addiction and the nature of this sort of sneaky sin is that it grips you, but you don't know it's gripped you until often it's too late and it's out of control. That's the cost of ignoring warnings when the warnings are meant to help us and not to hurt us. So that's the setup. That word of warning then points us to the, the teaching of our primary text, which is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. And here's what Paul says. He's talking to, to Timothy, who is a, a, a mentee of his, a, a young pastor he's raised up. And he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I want you to pay attention to this because he's giving a very specific audience to receive this command. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. In other words, there are people in the church who have money, who are rich, and you need to give this teaching to them. Here's a problem though. It's tricky when you hear words like those who are rich because it's very easy to believe that that applies to other people, but not really to you. Most of us would admit that we're not poor, but few of us would admit that we're actually rich. 
So how do you define rich and poor? Because really, truthfully, you're always going to know someone who's richer than you. So as long as those people exist, can you really call yourself rich? Well, a good definition, I think, of rich is anyone who has more than the basic essentials of food and clothing and shelter. In other words, once those basic needs to stay alive have been adequately met, and you no longer have to worry about your creaturely survival, then if you have anything left over, what some people will call discretionary dollars, money that, are, that isn't required for survival, but can be used in any way that you wish, if you have that kind of money at all, then we would conclude that you are rich, at least by a basic definition. Maybe you're pushing back at this point saying, that's ridiculous. That's so broad a definition that by that standard, just about every single person I know in my life is rich. And maybe that's true. Maybe by this definition, everyone you know is rich. That just means then that this passage is speaking to them. And here's why it makes so much difference. And let me explain it to you. If you don't think you're rich and you think nobody lives below that level, how could anyone not have discretionary dollars? Well, according to the World Bank, right now, 689 million people around the world live in what we call extreme poverty. That's nearly one in every 10 human beings on the planet lives at a level called extreme poverty that's living on less than a dollar and 90 cents per day. If you zoom out a little more and broaden the definition, Basic poverty at a global scale is living on less than $5.50 a day, and that encompasses 3.3 billion people. That's 43.6% of the human population. So if you have more than your basic needs met, you're on the upper half of the human race in terms of financial blessing. But there's another whole half of the world's population that does not have that discretionary income. They don't know what it is to have any choice when it comes to money. And here, even in the U.S., according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 34.6 million people in the U.S. live below the poverty line. And the poverty line in the United States, because we're a wealthy country, is $33.26 a day. So even our poorest poor here in the United States look wealthy compared to the, the global poor. But it's not a problem that's just overseas. Right here in our own homeland, some 10% of Americans live in poverty. It's important to draw the line of what rich means at this place, because if you don't do that, then it's easy to start believing that it applies to no one. You'll always know someone who's richer than you. So as long as that's true, then you can say, well, there's rich people and there's me. I've got stuff. I've got a little more than usual. But how do I know? And on that sliding scale, it's easy to beg off and say, you know what, God, I know you're saying what you're saying, but this doesn't really apply to me. I don't have enough to really make a dent in any of the world's problems. I, I just am a normal guy trying to have a comfortable life. And so you can excuse this and say, it applies to them, but not to me. I find myself wanting to do that because I'm a pastor and there's this age-old uh, proverb that pastors have no money, right? And that's not true. This church has compensated me very fairly, very graciously. And I'm not rich by any standards, by human standards, but when I look at this definition, I realize I am very rich. And I have to subject myself 
to this teaching of God. I don't have any comfortable wiggle room to say, this doesn't actually apply to me because I am whatever. There are so many people sharing the planet with us who don't have enough to have any sort of choice in this, the way they spend their money. And so this does apply to you. You are among the rich. If you're hearing my sermon, I, I'll bet you anything you qualify as rich. And if that's the case, then you need to hear what comes next because he gives a, a couple commandments. And the very next thing he says is, here's the thing you are to tell the people who are rich. And he highlights a negative command to, to avoid two very common temptations. And then he explains how trusting God is the key to overcoming both of those temptations. So next comes a reminder to trust God. When you look at 1 Timothy 6.17 again, it says, command those who are rich in the present world, again, that's pretty much all of us at Harvest, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. That first temptation is to be arrogant or haughty. And don't be so dismissive of that. It's not, it's not just about people who like walk around with their noses, looking down their noses saying, excuse me, peasant, will you come grab my bags? It's not something quite that comical. But it's this idea that when you have a lot, it's easy to believe that wealth is not something you have, it's something you are. It speaks to your level in society, the kind of person or the class you occupy. And you know this most keenly when you're with people who are either in a class far above you economically or a class far below you economically. And you say to yourself, wow, those people far above me make me feel really small, really paltry and humble, while those below you make me feel really superior. And it's this idea that wealth doesn't just affect your bank account. It affects the way you think about yourself. In other words, what he's guarding, what he's telling us to guard against is this temptation to anchor our sense of self, which is our identity, our worth, how we look at ourselves and how we think others are supposed to look at us. You're not supposed to anchor that to something as uncertain as money. See, you think about it this way. If you're having a hard time identifying with this, what if you woke up tomorrow and all of a sudden found out that you have the least amount of money out of everyone in your friend group, out of everyone you know, everyone at church, everyone in your neighborhood, you suddenly wake up tomorrow and find that you're the poorest person in your network of friends. Now, before you just move on, on a little sermon illustration, think about how that would feel tomorrow if you woke up and realized that everyone you know has more than you. See, that would be inconvenient. And it would be annoying financially. There would be a lot of practical issues that would arise from that. But you know that what you're feeling is much more than the financial woes of being poorer than others. Something would happen in your gut. There will be a shift in the way that you see yourself, and you would definitely feel it. You'd think other people are looking at you differently. Because they used to love hanging out with you because you could always handle, you could pay, pick up the check, you could pay your share of the bills. It didn't make them feel uncomfortable. And all of a sudden, everywhere you go, you're the person with the least. Just think about for a second how that would change your sense of self. Because if you think you're not arrogant or haughty, and I get most of us are not in that comical sense, but what he's really aiming at is something much more subtle. That when you have more than enough, it's easy to start believing that's an entitlement. That's something that marks who I am. I'm a better person than those who have less. 
I'm somehow different above all of that. And if you were suddenly cast low like them and your money changed, it would not just be your bank balance that changes, but it would be your identity and sense of self if you've anchored it to something as fleeting and uncertain as your wealth. And the second temptation he calls us to avoid is this putting our hope in wealth rather than in God. It's believing that our money is what really keeps us safe and secure. We might say with our mouths that we depend on God, but it's a lot easier to say when you have some savings, when you've got money in the bank, or maybe you've got a patron or wealthy parents who have your back. But as long as there's money in reserve, it's easy to claim that we trust God. But how confident would you feel about the future if you woke up tomorrow and had zero net worth? If you found that you woke up tomorrow and you were forced to live paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth, no savings, no backup plan, every day is a struggle for survival, how confident would you feel? And where would you find yourself wanting to put your hope? What would be the biggest issue you have to confront at that point? For most of us, it would be getting more money because it's a revelation that really, though we say a lot of things about the place God plays in our lives, it's so many other things that we truly hope in and trust more. The reason it's foolish to anchor our sense of self or our future hope to something as uncertain as money is because it really is undependable. Large fortunes can be lost literally overnight. I know for a fact that some of us at our church have lost massive sums of money overnight through bad investments or being swindled or tricked or different things. It's horrible when that happens. I don't want that for anybody, but it does happen. Fortunes are lost in minutes. And even if you manage to hang on to all your money for the duration of your life, as you get older and wise, you realize there are so many things that money cannot buy you, but that truly matter in this life's journey. The key to avoiding both of these temptations is to trust in God. I know we want to put our sense of self in what we have, what we can touch. But the truth is people, because we're all shallow and limited, we do treat each other based on what we have. We're uncomfortable when someone has too much more or too much less than us. That's why most of us generally hang around with people who are basically in our socioeconomic level. Most people don't have the, the um, internal range to hang out with people who are much more wealthy or much more poorer than they are. Even if you hold on to everything, you realize how uncertain money is but God will never treat you the way other people will treat you. They might change the way they interact with you based on how much money you have. And I know you don't want to believe that about yourself, but the truth is, if you suddenly have less money, you go through financial hardship, a lot of your friends will stop inviting you to certain things because it's just uncomfortable. Not because they stop liking you so much, but because it's really awkward when it comes time to share the bill and it's like, oh, let, let's just pick it up for him. And it gets really awkward at times. And yet God will never change the way He looks at you. He will never change the way He deals with you or treats you. No matter what, even if you lose it all, God will continue to accept you and affirm you and love you as He always has. 
even when you find that your own hands can no longer provide for yourself and your loved ones, God will have your back. If you have to pin your sense of self and your future hope on anything or anyone, doesn't it stand to reason that you should pin it to someone who is unchanging and almighty and stable and consistent, who loves you with all of his heart? Why would we pin it on something as uncertain and unreliable as money? Trust is a key element to fixing our bent relationships with money. I think the writer of Hebrews said it so well in Hebrews 13, 5-6. He writes, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, do you see how important trust is to having the right relationship with money? Because money constantly wants to compete with God to be the one who saves us, protects us, gets the best out of us, gets our devotion and commitment. And unless we learn to trust God in this way, we will never be truly free to be generous people. You can't let go of something to which you have anchored your whole sense of self. To give away money when money is what you're anchored to is damaging to the self. And so we've got to learn to trust God and anchor ourselves to Him. I think it's kind of ironic that if you want to remember that we're supposed to trust in God, you just have to look at your money and it's printed everywhere the reminder that it is in God that we trust. Let me give you a third thing here. He's already given us a warning against greed and a reminder that the only way to overcome the power of money over the human heart is to trust God. He says, once you've gotten that taken care of, once you're beginning to experience victory there, here's an invitation to generosity. See, how a person spends their money can be a pretty unreliable indicator of their true relationship with money. And that's because we're all biased. I care about some things that other people don't care about. So it's funny how like I'll see somebody spending a lot of money on something I don't care about that I don't think is important. I'll, uh, and there's a temptation for all of us, right, to judge that person. Like, ooh, that's a lot of money to be spending on something I don't care about. But then our own excesses we excuse because they seem justifiable. It's the way I feel whenever I will spend a little extra on certain technology because I like certain companies and certain brands that I think just work. And I, I don't bat an eye. I know they're expensive, but I think they're worth it. But when I see someone make the same kind of choice about something that I think is irrelevant, when I see someone spend like $1,000 on a handbag, and I could care less about handbags, I'm like, ooh, why would you do that? But why would you spend $2,000 on a computer? I don't get that either. And do you see how it is really hard to use what we spend on as a reliable indicator of the true nature of our relationship with money? We're all biased. I've got a, a pastor friend who really looks down on golf as a waste of time and a waste of money, but he seems to have no problem spending the exact same amount of money and the exact same amount of time lounging at a good restaurant, enjoying good food and conversation with people. Four hours, the same hundred bucks, but when it's golfing, it's sin. And when it's a restaurant fellowship, it's a blessing. 
Do you see how biased we are and why we can't start judging each other based on the way we spend? Because that doesn't always tell the tale. What is a much better indicator of our true relationship with money is not how we spend it, but how we give it away, how we share it. That's a much better window. See how willingly, how joyfully, how generously, how frequently I give away and share my things and my money with other people reveals a lot about the true nature of my relationship with money and possessions and the power that they actually hold over me. And by that measure, I'm not so sure the church in America is doing great. In their interesting book, Passing the Plate, authors Christian Smith and Michael Emerson made a bunch of really um, hard-to-read observations about the American church and our relationship with money. One of the things they observed is that 20% of all American Christians give $0 annually to anything related to a church, a parachurch organization, or even a non-religious charity. In other words, one out of every five American Christians gives $0 to anyone but themselves and their friends and their families. And even among those who give, you see that, that we are giving at a certain rate as the American church. But from among all those givers, the top 5% of American Christians who give, give 59.6%. That's nearly 60% of all the money that is given by Christians is given by the top 5%. And when you study that top 5%, what you, what you discover is they're not even the wealthiest Christians. It's just that only 5% of us seem to be doing a lot of generous, generous giving, and the rest are doing token gestures. It was hard for me to read that, but the truth is, this is one of the stories of the morality of America's Christianity. And we've got a lot of things to say about a lot of moral issues today, and I'm not suggesting we should stop. We are entitled to and commanded to have strong convictions about all kinds of things related to morality. But the persistence of greed and materialism and the lack of generosity in the American church may be among the most under-addressed sin issues that we face as Christ followers in the United States. And as a pastor, I have to really take a hard look at my own lifestyle, my own choices, and really lament the fact that I need to lead our church better in this area. It's not enough for us to have a clear moral compass on all these other things while we excuse the relationship with money when God Himself has given the, the sternest warnings about the power that money has over the human spirit. How defining it can be of our whole lives. And He's talked about it so much in Scripture that we can't just ignore it and still claim to be faithful to God. When you look at verses 18 to 19 in 1 Timothy 6, he gives the second set of commandments. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The negative command in verse 17 was to guard against greed and misplacing our trust. But the positive command in these verses is to embrace generosity. 
And it's really interesting how Paul frames generosity. He frames it in terms of conversion, of taking something in one realm and turning it into a treasure in another realm, as if life is really one giant currency exchange. We convert worldly wealth into heavenly treasure. And he says it's okay to be greedy as long as it's the greed for the right thing, to take that zeal we once had for accumulating wealth and turn it into a zeal for accumulating good deeds and heavenly treasure. You know, last week, and I know it's a little bit cheating to use the same illustration two sermons in a row, but I need to just repeat this. Last week I told you guys about the two founders of Duty Free Shoppers, Robert Miller and Chuck Feeney. And what a contrast those two men were. They started the business together. They became rich together. Robert Miller went out to become a textbook tycoon with a net worth of $6 billion and a life of luxury. Chuck Feeney went on to spend 38 years joyfully giving away his entire $8 billion fortune, which he just finished last September. He tackled global issues of such scale, it's impossible to think one person can make any dent, and yet he has. And he's also touched individual lives. Both men are still alive, and they're in their late 80s, but really, the end of this life is right around the corner for both of them. And their stories are a reminder to me that dying wealthy and dying rich are two different things. It's possible to die with a lot of money in the bank. But what he says is convert it now while you can. I I was wrestling with an illustration that would help me fully embrace the the emotions involved here, the, the, the motivation. And I came up with this. I wonder if it will help you. I don't know if you've ever played one of those um, massive multiplayer online role-playing games. I remember for about a month I dabbled in something called Second Life until I realized I actually have a first life that matters more. But it's these virtual worlds where you build this virtual life. And what's strange is enough people have gathered and spent so much time in these virtual worlds that they began to to accrue real-world value for this virtual real estate. You can make a lot of money buying and selling digital real estate, which doesn't exist anywhere but in the game, but it had real-world value for some people. So imagine that you were really advanced and you owned one of the hottest properties in one of these games a private island or an amazing block in a city, and you're like, this is something everyone covets. Now imagine then that as you're sitting on top of that game, that you get an announcement from the game developer that says, we're so sorry, but we're going to need to shut the game down in a couple years. You've got a really important decision to make. What will you do? See, one choice, and I think the wise choice, would be to cash out, to take all that valuable virtual property and sell it for real-world dollars because the game's ending in two days, or two years, I'm sorry, but your real life, your first life, not your second life, that's going to keep going long after this virtual game shuts down. A wise person, while the getting is good, while that window stays open, would busily convert those digital assets into real-world treasures. But some people might foolishly decide, you know what? And by the way, I just read a story. This guy in a, in a game called Entropia Universe just sold a virtual nightclub for $635,000. That's insane to me. That it's just pixels in a computer, but it's worth that much to someone. So that's what I would do if I were in that position. Even if I were on top of the game, the number one player in the world. But some people, they get blinded by success in the thing that matters less.
And only a fool would choose to hang on to that property and wait for the game to end so they could finish on top. Because having won that game, the real life that is truly life continues. And everything you valued went away when they switched off the lights and turned off the power on that game. Paul writes, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In doing this, then, we lay up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. What he means by heavenly treasure is that there are certain things that are eternal, the glory of God and the souls of human beings. And when we use generosity to convert earthly treasures into eternal things, what it means is we do things that bring glory to God that will echo through eternity. And we touch the lives of human beings who will exist forever and ever. Even a single act of generosity can impact a person's eternal destiny. Let me finish with the words of the Apostle John. 1 John three seventeen to 18, he writes, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. As a church, we've embodied these words beautifully at times. I want to show you a picture of the gifts and the donations that were gathered for Operation Shelter Cupid. And there's um, Sarah and Sang standing behind them. This is just the latest example of the beautiful way that our congregation responds when the call goes out to be selfless and generous. And what's even more encouraging is along with the donations, many people have, have volunteered their time and energy. And I want you to know that it's not just a campaign or a good cause. These are real human beings. Women and children who have had a very, very rough life, many of whom have never known unconditional love or support or safety or protection. And here some strangers are reaching into their world and touching them with the love of God. I want you to know that that's going to make a real world an eternal difference for some of these women and some of these kids. It might be the greatest kindness some of them will experience all year. And because we were generous, what we're doing in, in this one outreach is converting worldly treasure into something that will last forever. I'm so grateful we're good at doing this when the call goes out. Let me just close by giving you this challenge and invitation. Don't let generosity be a thing you do every now and then. But dig deep. Really confront the relationship you have with your money and your material possessions. And as God, ask God to help you be generous as a way of life, as a whole posture, so that when you finish this earthly life, there's very little left behind. But you've wisely taken everything God entrusted and turned it into things and stories and lives that will last forever. Harvest, it's not always easy to hear about money in a society that makes money such a private issue. And yet we must be willing to hear what our God has to say to us about the one thing He has said competes most for our hearts with Him. 
May God expose in all of us the sin of greed and materialism if it exists there. And to replace that sin with His heart and to make us generous people, not because of compulsion, not because of some other game, but because it is our delight to give away what we have freely received. May God make Harvest one of the most generous communities of faith in the United States. That's a prayer I really have. I I hope that wherever we are, wherever we go, we will be marked as one of the most generous people anyone has ever met. And as we do this, we will reveal and reflect the heart of our God in our world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.